0: Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studios, it's time for Workplace MVP. Workplace MVP is brought to you by R3 Continuum, a global leader in workplace behavioral health and security solutions. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gassman.
1: Hi, everyone. Your host, Jamie Gassman here, and welcome to this episode of Workplace MVP. Employee behavioral health has been a growing focus for employers over the years. In looking at the last year and a half with the global pandemic, this focus has become even clearer and the need to take action even more prominent. For years, employers have leaned on the support and resources made available through more traditional methods. Now, along with the increasing focus comes a new set of approaches, resources, and tools that employers can leverage in expanding the support they offer to their employees. Knowing which to choose and offering additional support to employees can be overwhelming. Do I go with the new app? Do I go with the new service, resource? And the list goes on. How can one choose the most effective approach in offering support services for their employees? Well, today, to help shed some light on how employers can approach making a decision on choosing the most appropriate support tools and resources for their employees' behavioral health are three amazing MVPs, Dr. Tom Young, chief medical officer and founder of Enview, Robin Hussa farrell CEO and co-founder of Sharpen Minds, and Dr. George Vergolius, medical director for R3 Continuum. Welcome everyone to the show. So our first workplace MVP is Dr. Tom Young, chief medical officer and founder of Enview. Welcome, Dr. Tom, uh, Tom Young.
2: Good morning. Glad to be here.
1: So let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your company and view.
2: Sure. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, my, uh, my background is in family medicine. I started out in family medicine many years ago and have evolved my practice life uh, over the years to behavioral health. The last 20 years, I've been in the behavioral health space, uh, seeing the need for improved tools, improved uh, methodologies, particularly For primary care doctors, uh, I've I've practiced everywhere from small rural towns where I was the only doctor for a thousand square miles uh, to um, city-based areas and seeing the need. And so that's kind of how InView began to evolve is back in uh, early 2016, um, running across some tools that were out there, um, but finding a better way Uh, to get those into the marketplace, to get those to primary care docs, but basically to help and begin to help in the the battle, if you will, that we have in this country and have had for years around mental health issues.
1: So your company and you has won several awards. Talk to me about how you've won those awards. What were some of them focused on?
2: Uh, Yes, we have, and we've been very proud of that. We started out our our sort of journey, if you will, in the mental health space, in the pure research space. Our tools have been used around the world uh, over the past 25 plus years, uh, particularly in pharmaceutical research trials, uh, large clinical trials, uh, multinational clinical trials. Our tools have become available in about 160 languages. So from that pure research base, uh, I, I started looking for more digitally acceptable ways uh, to bring them into the, into the common space, if you will, of, of healthcare. So some of the awards have been just sort of about creativity and, and changing something that's very uh, staid and tried and true in the research space and making it a little bit more usable uh, in the digital health space for, for providers. Uh, trying to take some of those things and then gradually move them into partnerships with other groups to be able to make them more uh, patient friendly, if you will, uh, more engaging. Uh, I think one of the keys for us uh, in, in getting there is really finding a space uh, in, in the world of behavioral health as it's evolved to being the key to doing what I call opening the door. Uh, We become the the way you put your hand on the doorknob if you're a patient, Uh, the way to open up something to begin to get some information, uh, whether that's information about uh, children in your family. Uh, So that's some of the things that we've evolved to. And that's where some of the awards have come from. It's just kind of fun ways to start to look at new ways to do things
1: right and part of that is some of the 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 screening and the assessment tools you've mentioned them already that your organization offers can you share with us you know a little bit of information around what those assessment tools are that you have available and how how are they different than other tools that might be out there
2: that's a great question uh really is i think one of the things about our tools uh, is, is the ease of use of most of them, uh, and the fact that they differ significantly. The big difference is most screening tools that people are used to, uh, both providers and patients, are tools that really screen for a specific set of symptoms. Uh, I, I'll give you a tool that helps screen for depression. I'll give you another tool that helps you screen if you've got anxiety. So, so the trick is, if you're the patient, all you have to know is what's wrong with you, and then you can pick the right screening tool which is sort of a perverse way of getting into the system, if you will. So our tools focus on generally helping people discover what type of disorder they may be involved with. Uh, if it's your child, it's, it's the ability for a parent to understand, is their son or daughter depressed? Are they anxious? Are they showing tendencies towards bipolar disease? Do they have ADHD? Some of the things that concern parents rather than saying, okay, yes, you have some of the symptoms of depression, thank you. Um, So our tools are based uh, in in that world, if you will, of being more specific, providing uh, the average physician, pediatrician, nurse practitioner, the ability to understand not just that the patient has symptoms of depression, but that they may well have major depressive disorder, or they may well be bipolar, and thereby speeding the process uh, for getting the right diagnosis to people.
1: Great. And so, you know, talking about it from the hospital sense and, and maybe a, a practitioner using these tools, how would an employer be able to leverage these assessments tools in helping the overall well-being of their organization or their employees?
2: Well, I think that's where the employer uses um, my term called opening the door. If I'm an employer, what I want to offer my my employees is the ability to get information, to get highly validated, quality information, to be able to make their own decisions. If I'm, if I'm a parent, again, as a, as a good example, and I'm concerned about my child, and my employer has offered me uh, some tools that I can go to, I can begin to understand where I need to go. And by offering uh, a simple tool, a uh, simple assessment tool, the employer is saying to the employee in one way, I care about your mental health. Let's talk about your mental health. Let's get this on the table. We, we together, the employer and the employee understand that there are problems. So it's that door opening kind of, kind of technology, if you will, doesn't have to make all the diagnoses and do all the treatment. It has to get you started on that, that mental health journey, if you will, or behavioral health improvement journey. Yeah, so almost, that's, I think, what employers can do.
1: Yeah, and almost empowers their employee to be a little bit more kind of informed about what they might be feeling. Would that be correct kind of assessment?
2: A- absolutely. I, I think that's that's the key element is giving them opportunity to become more informed. And, and one of the terms I use, particularly with families, is that often uh, a family will choose like a child, Uh, to be sort of the the point person in the family. And so one of the things I used to, when I was uh, working actively in the pediatric space was telling parents that, well, children are very often explorers into the wonderful world of psychotherapy for their families. So very often, the first person through the door that brings the family with them is a child. So employers then are empowering a family. And so from the employer base If I can make the family stronger, I have a stronger employee. I have a more valuable employee. I have a more focused employee. So providing tools, not just to the employee themselves, but to the family unit, I think are really the items. Great.
1: And, you know, looking at society, and you've mentioned this a couple of times already in some of your responses, there's a lot of focus on depression and anxiety, but why is it important to screen employees for mental health disorders beyond depression and anxiety?
2: Well, there are many other disorders which mimic uh, anxiety and which mimic depression. But a perfect example is somebody uh, is assessed with a simple tool and says, well, you have depression, so let's treat you for depression. That's fine if that's what you have. But if what you have is bipolar disease or if what you have is PTSD with depressive symptomatology or if you have some, some psychotic features to your depression, simple treatment is going to sometimes make it worse. So, the real, real key is getting a more specific diagnostic nomenclature to the discussion. So, somebody, for example, uh, an adolescent may appear quite depressed, but the underlying disorder may be an eating disorder. Uh, they may look, they may, a child or an adult may look anxious, but the underlying uh, disorder may be a specific phobia. An adult may look anxious, but may have underlying OCD, which is a certain portion of the population has. So getting the correct diagnostic understanding at the beginning shortens the process and improves the outcome for the, for the individual patient, as well as for the employer who gets back their employee in a much more rapid fashion, if you will. Right.
1: Great. And I know we have more more questions to kind of focus around this. But for right now, if somebody wanted to connect with you, how would they go about doing that?
2: Well, InView has a website, uh, InView.com, N-V-I-E-W.com. You can reach me that way uh, through through there. uh, uh, We have a phone number. uh, You call me. uh, Phone rings. I answer. Uh, happy to talk to people. So either by email or uh, off the website is the phone number and certainly happy to touch base with people at any point in time.
1: Great. And so we'll be bringing you back in for the group conversation later. For right now, I want to move to our next M- uh, Workplace MVP who's returning to our show for a second time, Robin Hussa farrell CEO and co-founder of Sharpened Minds. Welcome back to the show, Robin.
3: Thank you so much, Jamie. It's great to be here.
1: So give our audience a quick refresher on your career journey and kind of some background around how you moved through your career and what led to creating Sharpened Minds.
3: Yeah, my career began really bringing a live health education program into schools. So I was really looking at disordered eating prevention and the comorbidities thereof and Uh, The avenue in in to reaching a lot of individuals and families was through a high-quality arts intervention. So I looped uh, all the clinicians and the researchers to that program and uh, connected over 4,000 kids appropriately to CARE. Um, During that process, we surveyed over 80,000 participants over the course of four years And we kind of came up with the 160 most commonly asked questions. So that um, also led us to kind of developing the the 50 risk factors that we're seeing in schools. And um, so it was through that, a lot of learning, a lot of listening campaigns, that my husband and I picked up a camera and we started seeking out the answers to those questions, really finding the top scientists uh, around the country And um, to date, we have captured over 3,000 videos and over 500 evidence-based psychoeducational modules that we deploy through Sharpen, which is our turnkey service. Great.
1: And when you were on our show earlier this year, we discussed how things like stress and anxiety have been increasingly affecting employees' mental health. So since then, have you seen any major changes in overall employee mental health?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. So, in fact, we we have been doing a lot of listening with CHRO executives. uh, And what we know, they've said um, many different things to us they're seeing this year. But in particular, um, one quote that kind of stands out in my mind is they've said, if you're just sending employees to a 1-800 number, that's like Russian roulette. So, They've been requesting a lot of non-clinical on-demand services. Um, They've been telling us that employees need to be able to talk to someone immediately and in a safe and de-identified environment. Um, They're desperate to learn how to normalize the conversation around mental health and decrease that stigma like um, Dr. Young was just talking about. So um, I think there's a lot of worry um, in some that's happening at the employee level and at the employer level. Um, and, and we're excited actually that we have all this research and data to be able to support them.
1: Great. And from your perspective, you know, have you seen, I know you've kind of mentioned that they're starting to look for more, you know, options to support those employees, but have you seen, you know, changes in how employers are responding to this growing, um, the, the growing need for behavioral health support.
3: Yeah, Jamie. So I think what they're finding, there's a couple of things going on and, and Dr. Young addressed it earlier. Number one, that traditional EAP model, they're noticing that really isn't working. It's not enough. We know we need a comprehensive solution. Um, they need more supplemental um, customizable services that sort of um, help with that destigmatization piece and normalizing the conversation around mental health. Um, I think also from from what I've heard in the listening campaigns that CHROs really feel like they're starting at the ground level, having to figure out the mental health space. And so what I always say is there are so many experts who've been navigating this space for decades um, and established those best practices um, like Dr. Virgulinus and, and Dr. Young and, and the companies that they have founded, um, that it's really essential that I think those employers and employer groups really start connecting with those best practice frameworks.
1: So there's many different ways to support the behavioral health of employees from traditional methods to more non-traditional or even alternative approaches. In your opinion, how would you say they compare when, you know, for an employer looking at all of these different approaches, you know, how what are the comparatives?
2: Yeah,
3: so what we know is the EAP service, I don't think it was really designed um, as, a, as an ongoing feature. It was, it was really a um kind of a supplement to the traditional health insurance model. So I don't think it was intended to have um utilization on this large of a scale, which of course we've seen increase with COVID. Fewer than 5% of employees actually engage with their EAP service. What we learned through our listening campaigns is often employees don't even know it exists or they don't know what it is or why would I ever call it? So I think that um, HR executives are, are finding that they are having to be that mental health navigator in the moment, either of a crisis or like Dr. Young was talking about when a family member's in crisis. And so we just need to enhance the the system on um, pretty much all together. And so I, from my perspective, what is needed is ongoing mental health literacy training, um, the the social emotional skills development, and the ongoing sort of resiliency builders. They meet every employee, every employer, but also every family member where they are, and it kind of helps normalize that conversation around mental health.
1: So can an employer have one versus the other, or is there true power in more of a comprehensive multifacet offering to employees?
3: Yeah, I'm biased, obviously, because I I offer a comprehensive solution with partners like Enview and R3C. Um, And so why I say that is specifically because um, there are experts, specialists, and researchers who've been doing these, um, finding these outcomes um, over the course of four decades. What we want to do is plug in to those experts and make it a seamless, one stop sort of experience. Yeah. Um, and so that is what's required right now. It's fabulous to have a mindfulness app, it's fabulous um, to just take a screening it's fabulous to have evidence-based crisis intervention or postvention. What you want is the whole wheel of support so that at any step along the way, you can identify someone who's struggling, get them connected to care, help them in between visits and keep that wheel going.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Like a full continuum of support. Wonderful. If someone wanted to connect with you, how can they go about doing that?
3: Yeah, we're sharpenminds.com. You can learn more all about our services and reach out to us directly there.
1: Great. And so moving to our next workplace MVP, it's another returning MVP to our show, is our guest, Dr. George Vergolius, medical director for our show sponsor, R3 Continuum. Good to have you back to the show, George.
0: Great to be here, Jamie. My pleasure.
1: So let's start off with you giving our listeners a refresher on your career journey.
0: Certainly. Um, So I I actually began in engineering in college, believe it or not, and then went into philosophy and then realized I wouldn't have a job other than working uh, as a teacher. That led me into psychology. And then I kind of pursued the ranks of clinical psychology and just kind of fell into a postdoc in forensic psychology. I won't bore you with all the details there, um, but really just fell in love with it um, and fell in love with it after my doctoral degree. That's when I kind of Found my love for forensic work is after I got a concentration in neuropsychology. Um, So there's hope for people that are in their doctoral programs and still don't know what they want to be when they grow up. So that's that's good news for folks out there. Um, Early career, I did a lot of court-based testimony, um, diminished capacity, not guilty by reason of insanity. I did a lot of threat assessments for uh, child and family services, the Department of Corrections, and so on. Um, And that kind of led into kind of a general. Uh, expertise in violence and violence risk assessment and then along the way um this was around just a year or two after columbine um so i'm dating myself here but and what happened around that time is if you were in forensic psychology and ever dealt with violence risk at all you suddenly were the expert on school violence because there really wasn't an expertise back then and you just had to learn it quickly and dive in because there wasn't anyone to fill that gap Um, I happen to be working at a juvenile detention center, and we did see a lot of would-be school threateners and a lot of would-be school shooters come through the system over a number of years. And so I developed a proficiency and a specialty in that. And then naturally what happened a few years later is local corporations. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. We have a big kind of uh, East Coast technology hub at Research Triangle Park. And corporations began to reach out to me and say, hey, We've got a guy or a woman, usually overwhelmingly men, but occasionally a woman um, who's making a threat and we don't know what to do. And someone said to call you. And that kind of led me into the corporate space of understanding workplace violence and the impact of, of workplace culture and management and other variables that contribute to both effective workplace violence, as well as what we tend to hear about more often is predatory or targeted workplace violence. Um, and I've been in that space now for seventeen plus years. Um, in addition to that, I've continued to maintain a private practice for going on 19 years now, where I have a group of doctors that work exclusively in emergency departments, and we do crisis evaluations and involuntary commitment evaluations. And we deal with people uh, at their most vulnerable coming into the emergency departments, um, and we try to figure out, do they need to be in the hospital? Can they be safely diverted home or to community resources? So those kind of bookended kind of my career in a way that provided me a really sound clinical basis around not only the threat space and behaviors of concern, but the flip side of that, and this is relevant to what um, what Tom and Robin are talking about, is um, resilience. Because what we know is people that are resilient and have high levels of emotional intelligence and are functioning well are almost immune. I'm, I'm never going to say it fully, right? 100%. I never say that in my field, but they're almost fully immune to going on a shooting spree right? The Dalai Lama is not going to go on a shooting spree. Why? Because he's managing his emotional relationship life in a way that that is not a viable solution to his problems, among many other more pro-social, proactive, um, appropriate ways of managing. Um, So that led me into also needing to understand the world of resilience and the world of more adaptive functioning as a buffer to violence risk. Um, And then I joined R3 about 10 years ago. Um, and in that time we have expanded our disruptive event management program. We've expanded our fitness for duty program. I developed a specialized fitness for duty evaluation called a fitness for duty with a violence screen, which identifies people that are struggling at work with hostility and anger management issues. Um, and that has kind of brought me to today. Great.
1: And so from the work that R3 Continuum does. And you mentioned a few of the different service outlets that they provide. Do, do you see, I mean, you obviously see all varieties of workplace impact from either a death of a coworker, workplace violence, you know, the pandemic stress, you know, based on the cases that you've seen and worked, you know, what is the common impact on employees that you're seeing from the challenges and stressors faced over the last year and a half?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Jamie. Um, There's a lot of individual variables to be sure, but we're clearly seeing patterns and the patterns are consistent with what the data is coming out of um, CDC, Department of Health, Johns Hopkins, among other places. Um, Clearly, we're seeing an uptick in um, anxiety, right? We know that during the pandemic, anxiety has been up fourfold. Um, We also know depression, depressive symptoms has been up uh, roughly threefold, We are seeing an uptick in suicidal ideation, but interestingly, we're not necessarily seeing an uptick in suicide attempts. That's kind of an interesting dynamic that I still think across the field, we're unpacking a little bit and trying to understand that. Typically, as suicidal ideation goes up, attempts go up. So it's kind of an interesting uh, variable that we're seeing there. Um, Stress in general is also going up. Um, All of that, I think, is expected given the nature of the pandemic, how disruptive it has been on all of our lives. But there's been this kind of bimodal or or, or opposite effect I've seen where people are simultaneously, well, it's changing a bit now, but you go back a year ago, many people, many workers were simultaneously disconnected and reconnected at the same time. The disconnection was all the ancillary... More superficial, but still very meaningful connections we had in our day-to-day life—bumping into that person at Starbucks every morning, but you know, going to your kid's little league uh, and, and talking with the other parents, um, bumping into people at the grocery store that you would actually stop and talk to or give a hug to, coworkers, right, in in the office, stopping at the water cooler, having a, a, a lunch at the break room, going out to lunch—all of those things came to a pretty abrupt stop in early 2020. And we lost that immediately. And I think for most people, including myself, who have been doing this almost, you know, all my adult life, I grossly underestimated the, the positive impact those small connections make. I call those emotional strokes, those small emotional strokes every day when they're ripped away from us. At the same time, for many of us, not all of us, what it did is it forced us to go very, very local. So after a couple of months of struggling in the, in the, in the soup and the thickness of it, what started happening at least in my neighborhood and I heard this about others, is people started having fire pits and they started getting together in the driveways and they started reconnecting with neighbors in a way that the manic lifestyle previous to the pandemic just didn't allow us to do. And so it was kind of this weird thing of disconnecting with something that's very powerful, but also for many, not all of us reconnecting. What we have found at R3, both internally and externally with many workers, is perhaps one of the hardest hit groups were those groups that were living uh, typically younger, unmarried, and living in apartments. They didn't have the neighborhoods necessarily where they could go to someone's driveway and bring long chairs and socially distance, right? They were literally just stuck in their apartment um, and they didn't necessarily have that kind of engagement. So um, we saw it across the age span, but we tended to see that really negatively impacting those younger groups, um, you know, the 20s and young 30s a little more intensively. But I would say those were some of the big trends that we saw in our work, and even internally um, amongst our own, employ- own employees.
1: So for an employer, when they're looking at supporting their employee mental health, you know, particularly since there is so many different individual variables that can impact it, what is one thing that you would say they need to make sure they're considering that some of them might be missing right now as they're looking at different programs or ways to support their employees?
0: So there's a lot of talk. Robin made a great point about understanding, right, and awareness. Um, There's a lot of talk about communication. And these are the ones that are kind of out there. The one I don't hear as much that I would pick, if you're going to force me to be on an island, Jamie, and pick one, which is a great question, really makes me think. I would say this, model strength in vulnerability. Um, Everybody this last year has fallen. You know, And again, get off social media, because again, what we tend to do with social media is we're viewing other people's highlight reels when we have our behind the scenes reel, that we're comparing our behind the scenes reel to their highlight reel. Um, but model strength and vulnerability as a leader do that as well. It doesn't mean we break down totally. It doesn't mean we lose control, but it does two things. It gives our people, right? I'm going to use that more generally term here. It gives them permission to feel whatever they need to feel during this process. And as we go into the, the 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 upswing of the Delta variant, and now they're talking about a possible Lambda variant down the road, um, this continues to be a valid thing. But it gives people the uh, permission, if you will, the validation to say, yeah, you can, you can stumble. You could fall down. That's okay. Because we're all going to do that at different times. But what it also does by modeling that you have done that as a leader, and then you've gotten back up, It also models what resilience is about. Resilience is about never faltering. Resilience is about when you falter, you're able to work through that, learn from it, and grow better from it. I always think of the image of a lobster. I saw a talk years ago where a rabbi was talking about how does a lobster grow? and A lobster grows by constantly pushing against its shell until it literally breaks out of its shell. and Then it grows bigger and it forms a new shell. And then it grows bigger and breaks out of that shell. When you look at resilience through the lifespan, by the way, breaking of the shell isn't easy. It's a tough process. It's painful. Um, But when we do that through the lifespan, we're continually, we're not always getting better on a linear trajectory, but over the aggregate, we're constantly improving and getting stronger in terms of our sense of emotional functioning and resilience. I would say model that in a way that gives your employees a sense of uh, hope um, and motivation.
1: So are there support tools or, you know, resources or, or approaches aside from, you know, showing that vulnerability that they can use to help, you know, support their employees as they're showing that vulnerability? Maybe it's, I use this service too. It's, you know, it, can they, they promote it? You know, What are some approaches that they can use that help their employees to get that, that support that they need?
0: Sure. And, and I'm going to start with something that's going to sound tremendously self-serving, but I mean it authentically. And that is, you need to understand the problem. If you don't understand what's going on with your people, you're going to be just throwing things at the wall and some might stick, but many won't. Um, so you need to screen the problem and understand the nature of it. And that's where Tom and his group with InView are, are instrumental in terms of the the kinds of surveys and questionnaires and tools that they have available to help understand that. Um, From there, you also need resources that can help deepen awareness educate people, and guide them in the right direction towards either whatever self-help structures they need, or in some cases, if they need guidance to more formal clinical services. And again, that's where Robin and Sharpened Minds comes in. So I know that sounds very self-serving, but again, we wouldn't be partnering with these groups if we didn't have that kind of fully round, um, uh, full support um, that that we all provide together um, in a way that enhances all that we're bringing to the table. In addition, I would say you need clear communication strategies so people feel able to come forward with the concerns that they have, but also feel able to give feedback to leadership about what's working and what isn't. And then we we all need a sense of humility. At leaders, it's so hard. When you roll out a big program, it's really hard a year later to look in the mirror and say, that isn't working, or parts of it aren't working, and we need to reshape it so that it works. And I think that's where that humility comes in to constantly reassess our tools and redesign what is working and what isn't working. What I love about, in particular, both these groups, Sharpen Minds and InView, is they don't have, you know, um, you know the old saying that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. Both of these groups have a full toolbox of solutions that they bring to the table, um, I also think that leveraging—I think we're going to get to this maybe later—but leveraging apps in the right way um, can be very useful. I'll just—I'll leave that as a teaser because I think we might be touching on that um, later on.
1: Awesome! And so, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how could they go about doing that?
0: Best way to reach me is if you go to our website. um, Obviously, www.r3c. That's the letter R, the number three, the letter C. Dot com, um, and you could just search under our um, um, profiles and about um, George Vergolius medical director. I'm quite easy to find, and both my number and my email uh, are located there. Perfect. Yeah.
1: So now we're going to have a word from our sponsor. Workplace MVP is sponsored by R3 Continuum. R3 Continuum is a global leader in providing expert, reliable, responsive, and tailored behavioral health, crisis, and security solutions to promote workplace well being and performance in the face of an ever changing and often unpredictable world. Learn more about how R3 Continuum can tailor a solution for your organization's unique challenges by visiting r3c.com today. So now we're going to come to a group discussion and conversation. We have some questions here for our our workplace MVPs. First one is, why should employers be concerned with the mental health of their employees today? And so let's start out with Dr. Young. From your perspective, why why should employers be concerned?
2: You need to to understand your employees. Uh, You need to communicate with them. So I think that's the first thing. I think if we just take the broader picture for just a moment, uh, healthy, uh, emotionally uh, strong individuals also spend less money in the medical space. So if you think about it from the employer standpoint, just a minute and step away from the behavioral health space and say, talk about cost issues. Uh, if you're uh, self-employed, for example, uh, self, uh, uh, you're, you're an employer who pays their own bills, yeah. Healthy, emotionally strong people don't spend as much money on their on their health care. Uh, their their chronic diseases are not as bad for diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. So from that standpoint, good mental health is associated with lower cost. And then secondarily, we all know that, uh, and I think it's it's real readily apparent, people who are uh, resilient, as George and Robin have talked about, people who who are as as I often Say to people, look, you know, there's there's a choice between being happy and being right. Which one do you want? So those who choose happy, often are more productive. They're more creative. Uh, they're less likely to be absent. Uh, they're less likely uh, to to make mistakes. So all of those things I think are reasons for employers to to be involved in uh, and communicate with and discuss and make. Make offerings into the the wonderful world of uh, well being, if you will, on a mental level or health mental health level.
1: Robin, do you want to add your thoughts around this conversation?
3: Sure. Yeah. No. Uh, of course. In addition to what um, what Tom and George have shared, I you know, there's a statistic that I think is we all know, but the Kaiser Family Foundation found in particular, forty seven percent of women. And 34% of men experienced increased anxiety or depression last year working remotely. So as we're looking at what could be again around the corner here um, in the pandemic, um, we want to just be really mindful of all of those um, resiliency builders that uh, both George, Tom and I have been kind of talking about um, and know that the little steps that you take do matter. Um, and there's been also an incredible impact on women in the workplace and in the workforce um, to be mindful of, in particular, what the sort of burden on uh, women in the, um, in the workspace has been like. Um, we also know there's just been a substantial increase. I know eating disorder treatment um, has increased over almost double last year, the admissions Um, And we're seeing that because of things like increased time on social media, lack of kind of that structured environment, irregular sleep schedules. So all of these things um, speak to that loss in productivity that Tom was referencing, and it's all a great reason to begin the conversation if you haven't already.
1: And George, how about from your perspective?
0: Yeah, so there's two things I would highlight. One, and they're not exactly related. I'm going to start by piggybacking off something that Robin just said, because I think it's a great point, uh, related partly to the burden on women, but the impact of social media. And that is, as we reenter the workforce, I think there's going to be a tendency for leaders to be like, all right, guys, and women, we're back. And by, by the way, as a Chicago native, guys means all inclusive. <laughs> um, all right, guys, we're back. Let's get let's make up ground. Everybody, work, work, work. Productive, productive, productive. People need socialization. They need some water break time. They need that lunch break more than ever. They've been deprived of it for a year and a half plus, right? And it's tremendous. Those emotional strokes are tremendously um, life affirming. Um, We spend a third of our life at work, most of us, um, that don't work remote or don't, even when we travel, a third of our life is spent with this cohort of peers. We're going to need time to re-engage. So keep that in mind as a leader. So another thing, though, I I would highlight is hostility is up, right? We have clearly seen an increase in incidents of mass attacks, which the FBI defines um, as four victims or more not including the, the, the assailant. What's really interesting is, historically, for the past 30 years, those mass attacks have almost predominantly been targeted predatory violence, meaning non-emotional. An assailant would be attacking a group in a very cognitive-focused predatory mindset. Most of the attacks we've seen throughout the pandemic, mass shootings, have been emotionally charged attacks, barbecues, parties, uh, family get-togethers, where there's an emotional dispute, neighbors, uh, arguments at a grocery store over masks or whatever, or vaccines or whatever. Um, It's a different dynamic than we've historically seen. And what it clearly is telling us is people are more and more on edge in general. We know this from from depression and anxiety and stress levels, but they're also an edge at a level where it's boiling over more into emotional reactive anger and even violence. And so I think companies have to be very mindful as they enter back that the role of workplace violence prevention and hostility management is going to be more important than ever. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Great.
1: <clears throat> and so looking at mental health issues, you know, the stigma, though there's been a lot of work to kind of break down the stigma of mental health, it's still very real. So, you know, when looking at an employer, what can be done to, as Dr. Tom has already, er, Tom Young has mentioned, is open the door for employees to have a place to begin that journey easily. How can an employer create that comfortable environment where an employee knows what, you know, resources they have available to them and can feel comfortable to seek out those resources, um, you know, without that stigma being attached to it? And we'll go ahead and start with you, um,
0: Dr. Vergolius. I heard something recently by a colleague that was quite brilliant. It's in response to the Olympics. And it was in response to um, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka pulling out of the games. And he said, wouldn't it be interesting in a much better world if we were disappointed for them or with them versus in them for pulling out? And that to me kind of captured is as we as we re-enter and if we want to destigmatize mental health, which I think is continually to be important, we have to change the dialogue from being disappointed in people and conveying messages both overt and covert, and understanding that we could still be disappointed for them, right? When somebody that's on a high career trajectory and skyrocketing in their career at a large firm suddenly has a mental health breakdown. And it kind of very well may derail that career trajectory. It's not like they woke up one day and planned it and wrote out, dear diary, I'm looking forward to my breakdown, right? So we could be disappointed for them and with them and then work on getting them the resources that are needed to help them get kind of back on track and reclaim their life. And I think just those subtle rewording kind of changes our orientation to the problem and it becomes less of a stigmatizing issue.
1: How about you, Dr. Young?
2: Well, I was, interesting, I was saying the same thing George was, you know, how do I change the discussion, how can we change the discussion, for example, around Simone and and those folks? And so I agree totally with George on that. I think the other thing is, uh, I I think employers, leaders in organizations need to be more humanized. I think one of the the things that happens uh, as we ascend to leadership, we tend to become uh, a little bit less our own selves, our own humanness, if you will. And so I think one of the things uh, that has that is important is for a, a leaders to, to understand and be able to voice their own personal uh, struggles, uh, not only with the pandemic, but to be able to uh, own up to, if you will, their emotions uh, with so that their employees understand, well, if, if he can talk about it or she can talk about it, uh, then maybe I can talk about it. Then maybe I can ask someone about it. So I think that is that process of, of self-humanization uh, or re-humanizing, depending upon you know sort of what the process has been, it is critical uh, at, all, at all stages of, of employee uh, relationships. Uh, people need to uh, to understand that you 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 have struggles. Uh, you know, you've had problems, uh, and I think uh, often when employers can have those levels of discussions, it's, it's when they can level the discussion playing field between the individuals in an organization, whether it's uh, you know wh- whether it's an a boss and employees. But if everybody's on the same level emotional playing field, then things things think good things happen.
1: Robin do you have anything you want to add to that
3: Yeah I mean I'm going to I'm going to keep our my talking points a little bit more examples of what I've seen deployed um sharpen offers um, various components that are supportive to getting this conversation started it's kind of our our specialty in terms of that peer engagement that George is talking about and the real focus on those human stories of not only the struggle piece, but the stories of strength. So we know it's extremely protective when we're listening and hearing stories like Simone Biles and others who are coming out and talking about, um, and it's not just mental health disorders or substance use disorders. This is like, life has been hard. We are talking real challenges, like how do I juggle all this? So um, one of the things that I think has been really effective, um, we've seen a lot of employer groups and a lot of our clients leaning into kind of lunch and learns, where, again, we have all of these video-based stories that are are resiliency-focused. You can play those afterwards, sort of have a little uh, dialogue, just literally leaning in and getting the conversation started right there in the workplace, People are very interested in that. They're also very interested. There's really simple like poster campaigns, daily email, daily prompting that just, again, normalizes this conversation using content that is validated and and has a strong evidence base. And then through these CHRO groups, what we've heard, and I'll tell you, it's just so simple, they were like, wouldn't it just be cool if we could have a place where it, different groups of employee uh, employees and maybe the manager groups in a safe and de-identified way could just share with each other either in text, maybe it's just um, through another platform, um, conversations about, hey, how are you guys managing raising three kids and then getting to work on time? Again, not necessarily about mental health disorders, but just life stress. So those were some of the examples that we've heard, of course, um, especially in the last year. Great.
1: So looking at those various resources, um, apps is a big topic. So there's a lot of different consumer apps and business apps that are available to help people assess their own mental health and find a therapist to talk to you either online or in person. So how does what Enview, Sharpen, and R3 Continuum offer differ from these other apps that are out in the space. And we'll go ahead and start with you, Robin, um, and get your perspective on that.
3: Yeah. So aside from R3 and Enview being literally the gold standard. So when you look under the hood of what's there, the research validity, the number of um, clinically validated studies, I think, Tom, Enview, you guys are up to what, 19,000 now? So I mean, they're just there's nothing else like it. So it's truly the gold standard. And I think you want to know that when you are putting a mental health screening tool in front of an individual and also those best gold standard um, crisis response supports and intervention um, that George has been discussing, I think there's you want to make sure you're obviously in the best care possible. Um, I think it's the combination of the three that with the high customization, the localization, So it's really local when you're talking about where do I go to get care, what kind of sliding scale, other supports are available for the family members that are involved. It's that level of detail that I think as as a trio, we are laser focused on.
1: Great. How about you, Dr. Tom Young?
2: Uh, I agree with what Robin said. I think it really is key. It's hard for people uh, and always has been to make decisions about quality in, in broad areas like healthcare. Uh, it, it is difficult, and I think the the more uh, straightforward and uncovered we can make that, we can make those statements with with whatever uh, we're offering to people. I think that's that's critical because people don't have have a look into our world uh, as as much as others. And, and then I think the other thing is the ability to respond uh, to what they are asking. Uh, you know, what, here's my product, respond to it, but that may not be what you're asking and what your need is. So helping people find the, the, the right spot, there was a, there's a sort of one I always use. There's a old tribe of, of Apache Indians that used to live in the mountains of New Mexico and uh and and their whole goal in life from a religious standpoint was to find the right spot and and that was the drive that was the journey of life and so i think sometimes we need to help people find the right spot even if it's not our spot okay it's their spot and so i think having broad tools that are all quality to allow people to have the right place to find themselves uh yeah In that tool is the way to go. Not just, you have to like my tool. You have to like what I'm saying. You have to, you know, have to believe in what I'm saying, but, but rather here it is Find Let us help you find
0: your spot in this tool. Where does it fit for you?
1: Great. How about you, Dr. Vergolius?
0: Boy, those, uh, you know, between Robin and um, Dr. Young's response, I don't have a whole lot to add other other than, I guess I'll amplify that slightly by just saying, I remember one of the earliest things I learned in writing forensic reports is I had a mentor. Uh, it's like my second mentor, actually. I wish my first told me this. I would have been better years earlier. But he said, you know, the problem with your reports, George, is you're writing for other psychologists. You're not writing for your audience. And at the time, my audience were lawyers and judges. And judges don't think like psychologists. And in this space, and this is what I love about both what Dr. Young and, and Robin are doing, and and our own app, the R three uh, R three Resiliency app, which is a, an app for um, employers and EAPs that give you a number of tools around stress management and so on. Um, it, what I love about all of these is that they really are. Based on evidence-based approaches to these problems, that's important. You know, you know, you can't be making this stuff up. There needs to be an evidentiary base, but it's written in a way that is very accessible. It's written in a way that lay people can understand the concepts and then apply them in a way that isn't. Um, it quickly gets off um, psychobabble and gets on to what is the functional impact in your life. How is this going to help your life and help you help make your life better? So,
1: great. So one last question for this group, you know, obviously there's employers out there considering different resources, different tools. They're making lots of decisions, um, around, you know, how do they put that program together? If you could leave one advice or one thing that they should be considering or looking for when making these decisions for either the employees or, you know, supporting just the employee mental health, but also then expanding it to, you know, their families, from your experience, what would you advise employers to be thinking and doing as they're making those important decisions for their employees? I'll go ahead and start with you, George.
0: I would say um, again, these are good questions. It's so hard for me to pick one, but I will. Um, you know, we all know the saying "Hope floats," right? I love it. You know, it's a big, big saying that we've heard. It's big in the South, um, but I like to say, "Hope floats, but it don't swim." right? Hope is great in that it elevates people, but they need tools, they need direction, and they need support to get from the middle of the river to the bank, if that's the goal, right? Um, And related to that, I'll just say that one doesn't drown by falling in the river, they drown by staying submerged in it. And so if we keep these in mind as kind of our guiding mantra as leaders, I certainly try to, I don't always succeed, but um, I think we're going to be in a really good place as we go forward because this next year, as we return, whatever that may mean for different organizations, as we return to work, it's going to be different than what we've ever experienced. It's not, we're not just going back to 2019. It's not going to happen. So we need to be thinking differently as we go forward. Great.
2: And
3: how about you, Robin? Well, of course, I would uh, agree with Dr. Vogolius and and everything Dr. Young has been, you know, conveyed thus far. I think I would encourage um, employers to have some self compassion. Um, this is this is big uh, what you're faced with, especially in the HR space. I've seen and I've heard directly the stress you guys are under. And so to just give yourself a little grace there and to know that there are really smart people (laughs) who have, who've got you and who can help you put this together. So I would say, don't think you have to do this all on your own.
1: All right. How about you, Dr. Young?
2: Well, I'm going to key on, on what George said about, you know, falling in the river and hope floats being, being a guy from the South. Uh, I think, as an employer, what you have to understand is when you're gonna when your employees in the river, what you need to throw them is what they need, which is a a life a life vest, a life buoy, if you will, and not just any rock you picked up off the off the shore uh, there's a and there's an old Winnie the Pooh story about when rue fell in the river and everybody was standing on the bridge. So Eeyore decided that somebody had to do something. And what seemed like the most important thing at the time was he put his tail in the river so Rue would have something to grab onto. Uh, And and I think there's a certain truth to that. Employers need to know that it's just, I've got to just be there to throw what I can that's appropriate. Okay. Somebody may have had to tell me, here's here's a life buoy. But when they're in that crisis, when they're in that river, uh, you you have to do something. And often we need to just help employers understand what the most appropriate thing to do is at that moment. And the moments are always going to be different. Uh, They're never going to be the same. Uh, No two people are the same. So I think the real key is, is for an employer is to be willing and open to themselves to ascertain the right thing to do at the moment and not be stuck in their own belief system.
1: Great. Well, thank you all for letting us celebrate you and for sharing your expertise and advice with our listeners. We appreciate you, and I'm sure your organizations and staff do as well. We also want to thank our show sponsor, R3 Continuum, for supporting the Workplace MVP podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have not already done so, make sure to subscribe so you get our most recent episodes and other resources. You can also follow our show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at workplace MVP. If you are a Workplace MVP or know someone who is, we want to know. Email us at info at workplace-mvp.com. Thank you all for joining us and have a great rest of your day.